Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, we read, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief? For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Remember that the Lord Jesus has return from the Mount of Transfiguration. He, along with Peter, James, and John, are making their way down the mountain. And in chapter 16, Jesus revealed his identity, his mission and destiny. In that revelation, we also learned a little bit about our identity and our mission and our destiny. In that revelation, we discovered that Jesus on the top of the mountain reveals his glory and then provides a peek into the future, the future kingdom of God. As they head down the mountain, they're going to face a dark problem, a desperate father, a demon-possessed boy, and be powerless, powerless. Nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain, powerless. Jesus returns and he discovers a powerless people. And then Jesus will bring them face to face with the problem. They are powerless because their hearts are filled with unbelief. They lacked power because they lacked faith. And so it is with us. We will find ourselves with a lack of power when we experience a lack of faith. Horatius Bonner said, quote, In all unbelief there are these two things, a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. I think that's right. We might put it a little bit differently. And say all unbelief includes at least two things. An exaggerated sense of ourself. Or a dependence upon ourself. And an independence from God. And so in order to have power with God, you're going to have to be connected to to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, Every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief. 
And I'm here to tell you, you don't have enough money. You can't afford to live a life of unbelief. So how do we find power for faith? It would seem that we have to revise our opinion of ourselves and also of God. William Booth wrote, quote, The greatness of a man's power is in his measure of surrender. We were singing it as a congregation, I surrender. But I wonder if you really meant it. I wonder if when you were singing the song, I Surrender, you were beginning to appreciate the fact that whatever the plans and the purposes of God that he has for your life, whatever the future that he has for your life, whatever you think about yourself and whatever you think about God, that you're willing to surrender to him, to his greatness and his mercy and his love. We have to be connected to Christ. Again, Horatius Bonner says, quote, nearness to Christ, intimacy with him, assimilation to his character. These are the elements of a ministry of power. If you really want to have power in your life, power to believe the truth about God, power to address the issue in your life, power to be able to minister and to help others then it's clear that you're going to have to connect to Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith, Acts 20, 21. The Holy Spirit is the power for our faith in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. The word of God is the channel for our faith in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And so as we come to this story, it's important that you begin there and look what it says in verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude... That's Jesus, Peter, James, John. A man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, or have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and, into, and often into the water. The Lord and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, When they come down from the mountain, they're met by a large crowd of people and a desperate father. And the text tells us where the father is. He's on his knees. Mark's gospel fills in the blanks. In Mark chapter 9, verse 17, it says, quote, He has a mute spirit. And in verse 18, And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. And then he becomes rigid. Luke's gospel adds in chapter 9, verse 28, Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you. Look at my son. He's my only child. When you get all of this compilation and summation of what's going on, here is a desperate dad. Here is a dad who is at wit's end and he's come to the end of his rope. The word epileptic translates a Greek word that literally means in in the Greek language, Moonstruck. The French have an expression. They say, Vous êtes dans la lune. Dans la lune means 
you've been moonstruck. Um, epilepsy is a disorder of the nervous system characterized by either mild or severe seizures, which sometimes result in a loss of consciousness. Does this boy have a mental problem or an emotional problem or a physical problem or a spiritual problem? Whatever else is happening, we're told in Mark's gospel and here that a demon is terrorizing the boy. And we know from the Bible passages that demons can cause severe physical symptoms that include self-destructive behavior. And if you're looking again at the, the, the passage, it says, for he often falls into the fire. He often falls into the water. This is a New Testament first century way of saying he's involved in self-destructive behavior not just on occasion but but often he he's looking for a way to kill himself he's looking for a way to end his life but the father assumes that the boy is moonstruck in ancient cultures and even in some modern cultures it's believed that the moon had special powers. They believed in that world that if you slept under a full moon and if the light of the moon fell on the surface of your face, you were said to be moonstruck. When emergency rooms receive a rash of patients who act out in bizarre ways, doctors and nurses will often say to each other, it must be, yeah, you know. But this boy is putting himself in harm's way all the time. We might think of this as suicidal behavior. Motivated by the presence of a demon. Few things are more agonizing, frustrating, debilitating than to have a child who's acting out in this way. Years ago, the Denver Post carried the story of Samuel Graham. Samuel was 12 years old. He was the heavy kid who didn't have many friends. His father, Vincent Graham, is heartbroken. His mother, Jacqueline Graham, can't still show her son's room to a stranger. The article says, quote, One night late last August while his family slept, Samuel climbed out of bed, dragged a stool into the backyard, and hung himself from a fruit tree. On his last day on earth, Samuel Graham went to church. He had a pillow fight with his brothers. He had ice cream for dessert. He was five foot four. He weighed 174 pounds. He wasn't the heaviest kid at school, but he was shy and sensitive. And some people teased him about his weight, and then they would chase him down the street and smack him on the back of the head. And when the teacher wasn't looking, sometimes he would cry. In the social hierarchy of Westwood Heights Elementary School, he was on the bottom rung. Would things have been different at Parkway Middle School? Sammy was supposed to start the sixth grade 
the Monday that his father cut him down from the tree. Real pain, overwhelming horror, profound sorrow, deep and debilitating sickness. That's what's being talked about here. Demons are real, but demons aren't simply necessary to create the chaos and confusion and mental distress and emotional distress, but they can certainly contribute to it. There are families right at this very moment who live in constant horror and debilitating pain. There may be social factors, there might be physical factors, there might be spiritual factors, there might be demonic factors. But make no mistake about it, demons are committed to your ruin. They're looking for ways to kill you. And if they can't kill you, to debilitate you. And if they can't debilitate you, at least to distract you from the mission at hand. Demons cooperate with people's fear and insecurity and sense of hopelessness. Demons bring together in a perfect storm of pain and problem and treachery and hopelessness, self-destructive behavior. And then they want to act out. We live in a world that glorifies Satan. Young people are given a steady diet of post-apocalyptic visions, invitations to supernatural experiences, drugs, alcohol, acting out sexually, and other dozens, literally dozens of harmful activities. Parents will say, well, you know what? My child just simply doesn't want to go to church. My, ch my child doesn't want to participate in the youth group. My child doesn't believe in the Bible. My child doesn't pray. My child doesn't have faith in the Bible. Well, make no mistake about it. Your child will go somewhere and will learn something and will participate in something. And their life will be informed either by the Bible or something else. They will be informed by prayer and possibilities and hope or something else. Is your child in trouble? Is someone you love, are they in trouble? Suicide is more than just simply a personal problem or a social problem. It's a spiritual problem and it is a personal disaster for those who have experienced it. And so we go from this powerless family to the powerless disciples. Look what it says in verse 16. So I brought him to your disciples. But they couldn't cure him. You have to admire this father. You have to admire him. He's not going to give up. And I want to suggest to you something. Remember this father, whoever he is and whatever is going on, there's a multitude there. And that means there were scribes there. And there were Pharisees there. And there were religious leaders there. And there were the social and cultural accommodations that were available there. And no one, no one could help the boy. 
And perhaps the religious leaders began to chide the disciples and taunt them and jeer at them and scream at them. You're all a bunch of religious frauds. You're all a bunch of fakers. You're just like your phony master, Jesus. You say that you can help people, so where is the help? So much for Christian counseling. And this man is at the end of his rope. The nine disciples left at the foot of the mountain apparently have no power in this situation. Do we dare ask the question that we want to ask but we're afraid of the answer? Why? Why? Were they embarrassed by their failure? Did they provide excuses for their lack of power? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, earlier, Jesus told them, Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. But now the power is gone. What's the source of the power? Where where did the lack of power come from? And of course, we understand literally from the text itself, Jesus is going to provide the answer. We're not left with our imagination. Ultimately, we know that the issue is unbelief. And clearly, clearly the man brought his son to the disciples in the hopes that they're going to find some cure. They're going to find some solution to this horrible condition. Did the disciples try to exercise the demon? I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly what they did. And without effect. Why couldn't they help? Later in the passage, again, Jesus gives the explanation in part that's linked to unbelief and a lack of spiritual discipline. The implication being that the disciples aren't praying. They're not fasting. Jesus and Peter and James and John have been gone for some six days. Why weren't they exercising spiritual discipline in the absence of Jesus? We're not told. For whatever reason, apparently they seem to have given themselves permission. Well, Jesus isn't here. Peter, James, and John aren't here. So whatever it is that we normally do when it comes to prayer, when it comes to Bible reading, when it comes to crying out to God, trusting God, depending upon God, believing God, we're not told. We're not given the answer. We might speculate. They might have been envious of of the other disciples enjoying their mountaintop experience of retreat with Jesus. They may have foolishly thought that they could accomplish the deliverance in their own power based on the past and successful exorcisms. They may have been jealous. They may have let their guard down. We're not told, but something is happening. And whatever else the passage means, it's got to mean this. Look what it says. Read it again. So I brought him to your disciples. And they couldn't cure him. It has to mean, it has to mean in part, that it's okay to ask for help. 
It has to mean that it's okay to say, you know what, I have a problem, I have a difficulty, I have an issue, I have a struggle, and I don't seem to be able to deal with it. Are you struggling with something right now? Depression. Self-destructive behavior. Are you struggling or does someone you know, are they struggling with thoughts of, of suicide? You need to ask for help. You need to say, I think about this all the time and I need help. Others are going to say skeptically, look, I've tried. I've asked for help. Many people exhaust their their resources and give up. Uh, Imagine the person says, look, we've talked to ministers. We've talked to counselors. We've talked to therapists. We've talked to social workers. We've talked to doctors. Some are sincere and supportive. Some are expensive. Some complicate the situation. Some aggravate the situation. It's not working. But this man's persistence will pay off. Because he's going to bring his son to the one place that he can get real help and real hope and real healing. He's going to bring the boy to Jesus. And in verse 17, we look at this powerless generation. Look what it says. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus begins by pointing out the reality of living in a world that doesn't trust God, that doesn't believe God, that doesn't really want to offer hope in the reality of a real God prepared to make a difference in your life. Jesus himself uses the term faithless. That means absent trust and commitment to the living Lord of heaven and perverse. That word is exactly what you think it is. Crooked, twisted, not along a right path, but along a wrong path. And the Lord, I'm going to suggest to you, is speaking to everyone present. The twelve were given power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of diseases in Mark 3.14. Faithless, perverse, after only a week's absence from Jesus, they are powerless. And I'm going to suggest to you that just one moment, one moment, just a moment away from Jesus will, will render you powerless. Hey, look, I've prayed for lots of people. I've counseled lots of people. I've done this lots of times. Guess what? Guess what? You're on dangerous ground when you attempt to do stuff apart from Jesus, when you attempt to do things disconnected from Jesus, when you think that you have power disconnected from prayer and disconnected from the Holy Spirit and disconnected from the revelation of God. They failed, but not because they didn't try. Their problem was unbelief, or we should say their problem was belief. 
in the wrong in the wrong remedy. You see, there are certain things, and I'll just be blunt. I can't heal anyone. I have no power to make the deep, dark difficulties in your life go away. There's nothing magical about Gina Geraci. It isn't like, well, if I could just get Gino to pray, if I could just get Gino to care, if I could just get Gino to reach out and say something, I'm sure that these problems would disappear. And I'm here to tell you and to beg you, I'm happy, happy, thrilled to pray with you and to pray for you and to pray against Satan and to pray in confidence and faith that there's a real God and a loving Jesus who can help you. Jesus says, how long till I'm with you? How long? This is an idiomatic expression, which just simply means, how, how much longer am I going to have to put up with you? Now, we laugh because it seems so not like our Savior. Well, of course he's going to put up with me. That's what he does. He's the Savior who puts up with me. But this rebuke isn't just simply for them. The rebuke is for us. Why won't you believe and trust? What an indictment against a powerless disciple or a powerless church or a powerless generation. We've never had more access to God's word. We've never had more ability to access God's promises. We've never had more unlimited access through radio and television and the internet of powerful tools. We have more teaching tools than ever before. We're so rich. We're so blessed. Then why are we so powerless? One Bible writer says, quote, we cannot and dare not duck the master's diagnosis. For if we accept it, we must carefully listen with his disciples to what Jesus now said and did. For in a few moments, he is going to raise the boy's father's faith to a level requisite with the miracle to take place, unquote. We are powerless when we fail to appropriate the power of God that is given to us through the person of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And there are no more words filled with more hope than the next few words. Bring him here to me. Instead of being frustrated, Embarrassed, bring them to Jesus. Take them to Jesus. Again, we, this isn't the first time that Jesus has said, bring him to me. 
This isn't the first time that I've said to you, bring your loved ones to Jesus. Bring your children and grandchildren to Jesus. Bring your neighbors to Jesus. Bring the people who are hurting and in trouble, bring them to Jesus. Have you brought your children to Jesus? Have you brought your family to Jesus? Have you brought your loved ones to Jesus? Do you understand that the dark and wicked forces that are working all around you are at work to try to discourage you from bringing them to Jesus? Are we going to solve the problems of persistent depression, suicide, mental, emotional, spiritual distress with more government, with more drugs, with more education? Just put it this way. Let me just do the math for you. If we destroyed every single drug, if we imprisoned every single drug lord, if we banned all music that glorified sex, drugs, rock and roll, if we crushed every pornographic website, if we cleansed the earth from all sex traffickers, would we still be left with the human heart? Would we still be left with the hosts of hell? And so when you have that malignant combination, the human heart and the demons of hell, there is no other remedy other than to bring them to Jesus. It seems so simple that some of you are thinking, Gino, you just sound so simple, but guess what? Jesus remains the solution. Really, you should be asking a different question. How do I do that? How do I bring my loved one to Jesus? How do I do that? And again, later on in the text, he's going to be talking about prayer and fasting. This isn't just a, a ritual exercise in order to make demons go away. What he's talking about is connecting with the God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit for your life. What will Jesus do once they brought him to Jesus? He's going to rebuke the demon and cure the boy. Look at this powerless demon in verse 18. Jesus rebukes the demon and it comes out of him. And the child is cured from that very hour. In other words, is this three days of, of humbly fasting and praying and doing whatever? No, Jesus has absolute power. He has absolute power. You do not have absolute power. He to be the one to break the news to you. But Jesus does have power. This demon has no choice but to respond. And again, you know this. You know this in your heart and you know this in your mind. You know that there's a sovereign God and a sovereign Lord and a gracious Savior. This is no contest. This is like Michael Tyson versus Pee Wee Herman. I mean... You just hold up your fist and he just pretends like he's dead. Mark's gospel tells us the demon doesn't leave without making one last desperate attempt 
to destroy its host. In Mark chapter 9, verse 26, it says, Then the Spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And the Bible says in Mark's gospel, and he became as one dead. So that many said, he is dead. I want you to think about that for just a minute. There's this violent confrontation between Jesus and the demon. There's one twisted, perverted, last attempt to destroy the host. A loud scream, a convulsion, and then stillness. A profound stillness that looks like death. Can you imagine? Just imagine it for just a moment. The boy's father screams out in fear and terror and confusion. What just happened? Did you kill my boy? Has Jesus failed? The demon's gone, but at what a cost? What a price? And then Mark 9.27 says, but Jesus... Jesus, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Can you imagine how dark and desperate the circumstance must have been? The boy was cleansed. The boy was alive. The boy was free. Isn't that exactly what you want for your children? Don't you want them to be cleansed, alive, free? Isn't that exactly what you want for yourself? Demons are powerless against the Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis made the comment that we make two mistakes concerning demons. We give them far more attention than they deserve, or we dismiss them altogether as mythological creatures or ancient superstitions fabricated by primitive people, afraid of the dark or ignorant of brain chemistry. Some people point to demons as the explanation for all bizarre behavior. But that's just simply not true. Did you know that the word schizophrenia itself is a word that means bizarre behavior? But there's a lot of reasons you can act out weird. I was watching the Bronco game on Thursday and I said to myself, they want to lose this game. They want to lose. Instead of doing everything that's right, they're doing everything that's wrong. And then when they get in field goal position, I said, they can't miss this kick. Any, the lamest kicker in the NFL can make this shot. And Miss Mary, my wife, said, you know, with God, all things are possible. <laughs> it wasn't a silent voice saying, oh, ye of little faith. It was an audible voice. Coming from my wife. Chuck Smith gave me good advice years ago. He said, emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. Teach what the Bible teaches. Be silent where the Bible is silent. And the Bible has a lot to say. It is not silent on the subject of demons. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. There is an unseen enemy 
who is very real. And the struggle is personal. We face a powerful army bent on the destruction, first of individuals, then of families, and then of churches. And your family is no exception. And this church is no exception. Because guess what? When you come to love Jesus and trust Jesus, his enemies become your enemies. His foes become your foes. His adversaries become your adversaries. And these enemies seek to suggest and then seduce and then cause people to surrender to them. The Bible rightly condemns occult divination, spirit communication, or trying to get access to information through the dead. Oswald Chambers writes, quote, The devil is a bully, but when we stand in the armor of God, he can't harm us. If we tackle him in our own strength, we will soon be done for. But if we stand in the strength and the courage of God, he cannot give one inch of way at all, unquote. And so look at the, a powerless faith in verse 19 and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. Look at this private conversation. Why couldn't we deal with the demon? The simple answer that Jesus offers, because of your unbelief. Now again, remember, what does unbelief include? Always at least two things. Unbelief isn't just simply, I don't believe what the Bible says about God. Unbelief always includes, I do believe what I believe about myself. It's this wicked combination of both things. It is exaggerating your own ability. And refusing to come to grips with God's authority and Jesus' ability. All unbelief is the belief of a lie. So we might think about this in two ways. Exaggerated personal ability. Underestimating God's ability. Their very question reveals the source of their error. Why couldn't we cast it out? Because it's not about you. You don't have the ability to make anyone well. You don't have the ability to cleanse sin. Forgive sin. Bring hope. Is it possible they believe that they possess this power in a magical way or in a religious way or in a superstitious way? Were they trying to exercise power independent from the Lord? Were their mind or their motives somehow disconnected from the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? Unbelief isn't the cause of sin. Sin is the cause of unbelief. A.W. Pink wrote, quote, None but the Lord himself can afford us any help from the awful workings of unbelief, doubting, carnal fears, murmurings. Thank God one day we will be done forever with unbelief. 
I love that. There's going to come a day when doubt, carnal fears, complaints will be done away with. In order to defeat Satan and demons, it's going to require faith. It's going to require supernatural power, but not just any kind of faith, but biblical faith. The kind of faith that is persuaded that Jesus is the Lord. And so look at verse 20. For assuredly, I say to you, we have a powerful Savior. He says, for assuredly, this is the truth, Jesus said. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to the mountains, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Look at the period at the end of the sentence. That's the size of a mustard seed depending on what font you have in your Bible. <laughs> if you have a large print like me, then the period's way bigger than a real mustard seed. This is interesting. Mustard seed faith isn't about quantity. It's about quality and persistence. That's what he's talking about. The basis of faith is the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's an intimate relationship between faith and the faith. Faith is the act of believing. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who Believe in his name. I have a little acronym for you. J-E-S-U-S. J, justification. E, eternal life. S, salvation. U, union. S, satisfaction. What I encourage you to do is get the tape or go to the website. Justification, Romans 4.24. Eternal life, John 4.13. Salvation, Matthew 1.21. Union, John 12.24. Satisfaction, John 7.37. With justification, eternal life, salvation, union, satisfaction. Guess what? There's a storm that will begin to brew inside of your heart. The faith is truth believed. So what's the difference between faith and the faith? The faith is when you believe the truth. Faith is food that makes us strong in Acts 14.23. Faith is a weapon that we use against spiritual forces of darkness in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were called. Confess the good confession in the presence of many enemies. The faith is an anchor which fastens its cable so that you can hold on tight. The disciples needed to learn a lesson that, that we all have to embrace. That real power comes from the Lord. And in verse 21, look what it says. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Let me just be simple here. Prayer attaches us to God. Fasting detaches us from ourself. Remember, fasting is to deny yourself something, not for purposes of getting something religious, but rather 
You deny yourself in order to have something that God or Jesus wants to offer you. So prayer attaches us to God. Fasting detaches us from ourself. Prayerlessness is powerlessness. I know it's not good English, but it's really good theology. On the top of the mountain, the father said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now the beloved son says, this is my father, talk to him. Fasting detaches us from ourself. Many manuscripts omit fasting from the text, but the principle of denying the flesh applies in the strategy of cultivating and exercising faith. Faith requires a lifestyle, not just an incident, but a lifestyle of praying and fasting. Our prayers and fasts prepare us like soldiers in boot camp for the physical or the physical conditioning of an athlete so that when the terrifying moment comes, you're going to be able to have something to offer. It was 15 years ago today, 15 years ago that 9-11 occurred. It happened on a Tuesday. Most of you are old enough to remember where you were and what you were doing 15 years ago. When it happened, I left on Sunday morning to go to Ground Zero. I got to New York on Sunday night and found myself at Ground Zero on Monday morning. Six days had gone by and we were still in the rescue mode when we were there. And when I literally came upon ground zero, firefighters were approaching me covered with soot and sweat and tears. They were still literally looking for people to dig out of the rubble. The very first person I talked to said to me that 16 people in his precinct died at that moment. there was so much pain and there was so much sorrow and there was so much difficulty but you can imagine they would ask me where are you from Littleton Colorado without exception every single person said oh oh so you know about pain, you know about sorrow, you know about devastation, you know about disaster. Demons are dangerous, but we're not powerless. Faith goes up the stairs that love has built and then opens a window that only hope can provide. Faith says, I'm going to stand in God's will like Stephen in Acts 6.5. Faith says, I'm going to rest in God's bosom like Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5. Faith says, I am glad in his joy like Paul in Romans 5.1. Faith says, I'm inspired by his love, Ephesians 1.5. Faith says, I'm strengthened by his grace like the apostles in 1 Corinthians 2.5. Faith says, I glory in Christ and I'm completely satisfied in him in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. 
you're always going to be faced with two choices. Faith or unbelief. And trust me, you're going to need Jesus when the time comes for someone to say, could you please pray with me? Could you please help me? Could you please help me discover the promises of God in order for me to go forward into the future? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray for our family members and friends who are so hurt and so empty and so broken. Lord, in moments of honesty, we confess our selfishness and prayerlessness. Lord, we understand that just simply praying once in a while or simply denying ourselves a latte or a pleasure isn't really what the Bible has in mind when it talks about prayerlessness. Heavenly Father, we know that each time we pray, we're admitting that we can't and that you can. Lord, you're the one who offers the solution to the emptiness in our heart and the darkness and the fear and the anger that so many people are experiencing. Lord, you're the one who offers the solution to the persistent pain and the pounding of supernatural forces that are trying to get us to walk away from the truth. And so, Lord, we resolve by grace and through the Holy Spirit to be men and women who love you and who will pray to you for your empowering presence and for the strength of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of the word of God to help us say the things that need to be said and to do the things that need to be done. In Jesus' name. And the saints said, let's stand.